once again this blessed Lord's Day. We are thankful that we can come into your house to be with your people, to hear your word. We ask that as we open up this text from 1 Timothy, that you would give us wisdom, help us to apply it to our own lives, to glean the wisdom that Paul is teaching to Timothy. Uh, We thank you for this text, and we ask uh, that you would be with our conversations in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are traveling through 1 Timothy. Um, Paul's writing to his protege, Timothy, encouraging him in his church planting efforts and especially his um, ministry in Ephesus. Ephesus is a um, Greco-Roman city. It's in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. And uh, it's, it's got a, its own set of challenges. Paul warned them when he was on his way to die, basically, in Jerusalem, um, <clears throat> that uh, fierce wolves would creep in and would also arise from among them and would teach false things. And so the elders needed to be on guard. Um, they needed to be aware of what was happening within their, within their congregation. And so um, we are picking up in chapter 3. But before we get there, we had some pretty tough things that we went through um, in chapter 2. And I want to take time for some questions. There was not, we, we ended up going over last time and not really having time for that. So if you, if you have any questions, and I'm praying you don't. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Uh, um, I want to I provide an opportunity for us to go over those things. And obviously not women, right? They should be quiet in the church. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's right there. Oh, good, good. Wow. Chapter 2. We, were, we looked at uh, specifically uh, verse 8 through 15 was kind of the hot button issues. First Timothy. That's all right. You can be forgiven. Just once, yeah. No questions. Great. Let's move on to chapter three. <laughs> What's that? My prayers were answered. Yes. Um. <laughs> no, I do seriously. If if you have a question, this is the time to talk about it. Um, I know these are cha- this is cha- it's a challenging things that he says, you know, um, especially verse 15. A lot of I've had a lot of women ask me those a question. What does Paul mean by being saved in childbearing? And we we talked that that's a synecdoche, right? Childbearing is stand a part that stands in for the whole. Basically, your womanly vocation. What is it that God has called you particularly to as a woman? Well, in that, you are sanctified, and uh, specifically, uh, we talked about the overcoming the curse that God had placed on Adam and Eve. One of her curses was the pain in childbearing, but not just giving birth, but rearing the child to adulthood and having their children continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. Many of you know the um, particular... Um, uh, what's the word, angst, anguish of having children that walk away from the faith. 
it's it's devastating and it's hard to watch. Um, and so uh, there's a lot to be said for the uh, vocation of mothers to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Yes. Right. Yep. So if you did everything you can with what God gave you, and then God, you don't see the fruit, you still accomplished what that yeah. verse was yep. saying. That you did everything to His glory, to the best that you knew how. Right. You know. Yeah. So sometimes I just sometimes I won't. Yep. Yep. Kids are not where you want them to be, but it doesn't mean that you weren't doing what God called. Yeah. You. Yeah. You're not the Holy Spirit. Right. You're not an agent of regeneration. You're a tool that God uses, but the outcome is in the hand of the Lord. So we have to be faithful with what he's given us. um, And we continue to pray for our covenant children, right? Because we believe the promises of God. Um, But uh, ultimately, uh, we have to rest in the finished work of Christ for our children, just like we have to rest in it for ourselves. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So we're going to move on to to uh, chapter three. We're going to look at the qualifications for elders and deacons. Now, men, this is your opportunity to shine in front of your wives. We have been studying this for six months. So you guys know this text. You know all about it. Now you get to show her all the things that you've learned, that it's not just donuts at men's forum, but we're actually engaging with the text. So now's your chance to shine. Paul says in verse 1, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not gentle, not coarsome, a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. All right, we'll stop there. What is an overseer? We don't have that in our church, do we? An elder. Pastor. Bishop. Yeah, that's the word. It's episkopos, right? It's a, it's a bishop. Uh, Paul uses the word episkopos and presbyteros, presbyter, in interchangeably, they're the same office. Uh, we know that from Titus chapter 1. Um, so uh, Paul uses the word overseer here, but it's the same as a presbyter, what we would call an elder. Um, so he is describing the qualifications for someone who oversees the ministry of the church. Um, and it, he, remember, these... Uh, when, when we see this kind of uh, 
um, all this information fronted with the saying is trustworthy, what's he doing? What's he drawing our attention to? We've seen this before already once. He's telling the truth, and this is something pay attention to, because it's not something I made up. This is revelation. This is something that you need to um, pay attention to. It's important. Um, It's truthful, and it's worthy of our trust. So it's like you can take this to the bank. This is... This is God's truth. You know, that's the statement you would make if you're trying to impress upon somebody the importance of what you're about to tell them. You know, this is trustworthy. You can believe me. So if someone aspires to this office, it's a noble aspiration. It's a good thing if somebody wants to be an elder in the church, wants to be a bishop, wants to be somebody who... um, has the oversight, spiritual oversight and care of a congregation. It's not something, um, it's a valuable thing in the life of a, of a man. Then he gives a list of qualifications. And he begins with the first qualification, he must be above reproach. What does it mean to be above reproach? Nobody's reproaching them. Yeah. That's good. (laughs) Yeah, somebody you can't easily find fault in. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's true, and we're going to talk about that when we talk about um, wh- what it means to be thought well of by outsiders. Because you could go a couple ways with that, um, and we, we need to be careful. Uh, we always want to be people who stand with the truth, and oftentimes the truth is not popular, right? Uh, a lot of prophets were killed because they, did, they spoke the truth. Um, now, there are ways that you can be... Um, not thought well of by outsiders that are sinful, right? And we know many of those, those are the sexual impropriety, all the moral failures of pastors and leaders within the church that cast dispersion and uh, give us a bad name, right? That's that kind of attitude. So above reproach is basically a catch-all for all of the rest of the qualifications that he's going to lay out. Above reproach, well, what does it mean to be above reproach? Well, it means to be a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, not a drunkard, on and on. Those things are the qualifications of what it looks like to be above reproach. So uh, let's just look at these one by one. A husband of one wife, this is literally a one-woman man. Uh, What does that mean? What is Paul Paul? Eliminating and what is encouraging? One woman, man. Right. 
right. Yeah, he's not a polygamist, right? He's just got one. Polygamy was common in that culture. Uh, getting to be less so in, in the first century, um, but it's obviously common enough in biblical history. So, yeah, it, well, yeah, it's not, it's not gone away, right? We, we've had um, polygamy in America. It's not legal, but uh, the Mormons have practiced it. And um, I remember confronting, I was just talking with somebody about this the other day, but I remember when we were missionaries in Africa, there was a, a man who was converted who had five wives. And you have this pr- problem of what do you do with, how do you counsel him? He's now wants to be faithful, you know, but he's got five wives. Well, I mean, you do, you don't have him divorce them. That's not going to be faithful. I mean, but you certainly wouldn't make him an elder in the church, right? That's clear. Uh, he's to be a one-woman man. So he's got to deal with the consequences of his sin, and he's got to love and care for those wives, which is a challenge just with one wife, right? Uh, let alone five. But he's got to figure out how to be faithful within that context. Um, right, right, right. So uh, this also means, and we men talked a lot about this, but it means to be devoted to one woman, and it means that you're you're not devoted to other women online or in emotional affairs or in you know cultivating friendships with the opposite sex. Let me just say it. It's not a great idea to have friendships with the opposite sex. They don't lead to very good places. Um, It can be done, but it's not wise to do it. And it should be probably done in the context of friendships within your marriage. Your wife's friend might be your friend in the sense that you're her husband's friend. Um, But I would never cultivate close, intimate relationships like what we're going to talk about in the sermon today with Jonathan and David with the opposite sex. And um, there has been women who, uh, specifically Amy Bird, who I know came and did a retreat for us, she wrote a book on the importance of that. And um, I think it was really lacked the understanding of the relationship between the sexes and how dangerous that can be. So uh, I think what Paul's getting at is that your devotion needs to be to one woman as a man, and that you need to cultivate. And it's with your eyes, your thoughts, your emotions are to be devoted to that one woman and, and vice versa with the, the female. So he's got to be a one-woman man. He's got to be sober-minded self-controlled, respectable. These are all sort of interchangeable um, terms. What do, you, what do you think Paul is driving at when he's calling them to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable? Yeah. Why would that be important for the office of an elder? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Uh, if you haven't, 
if you haven't ate the food, you probably shouldn't recommend it to others, right? Uh, if you've not been strengthened by this grace, the author of Hebrews says, then how are you going to use it to benefit others? So if you haven't gone to Christ, how can you lead people to Christ, right? It's not that the overseer has all the answers. It's not that he's the answer man. It's not that he's the Mr. Fix-It. It's not that he has... Um, uh, is, um, but it's he has gone to Christ. He knows what it is to have his sins forgiven. He knows what it is to, um, to drink deeply from a fellowship with God. And from that, he's able to lead other people. And part of that is being sober-minded, which means not, um, you know, sober-minded. We think of uh, somebody who's inebriated. They're not thinking clearly. You know, when you do, when you when you're drunk, your thoughts are muddled. You can't think straight, and you make poor decisions. You you usually operate from your impulses, from your desires, your appetites, instead of something that's thought through, well reasoned. So a sober mind is like a sound mind. Somebody's thinking clearly. Somebody. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah. Self-control. I mean, he's going to get at not violent, but gentle. So he, he, he runs the gamut here. He's not, um, he's not shy to point out all. And you notice these are all character traits. You know, it's not like that an overseer must have a master's of divinity and have, you know, read this Calvin's Institutes and, you know, it, it's all about who he is as a person. And is he walking out the faith? Is he living like what the gospel has told him is true? Is it true in his life? Is it bearing fruit? And is he operating from that position? Or is he, is he have his own qualifications? Respectable, of course. I mean, you, you can imagine somebody trying to lead somebody who's not respectable. What do you do when you have that? Have you ever had a boss that's just like not respectable? It's tough. Why? Why is it so tough? Yeah. Yeah. What else? I mean, why is it difficult to follow somebody who's not respectable? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because you don't have, yeah, you don't have trust in their ability to lead you somewhere that's going to accomplish whatever mission or task or something that you're trying to accomplish. You 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 doubt it. You think ah, I don't. This person's not respectable, so I don't know if we can actually get the mission done. I don't know if we could get this task, this job, whatever. You know, if, if someone's not respectable, it makes it incredibly difficult to lead them. To... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep, yeah. 
Yeah, or they, you know, they, they don't, what they say is not true, but also it's not lived out, right? They might tell you to do something, but it's sort of like, do as I say, not as I do, that kind of leadership, which we've all seen, and we've all not respected, right? We've all thought, I'm not going to do that when I get into that position, and hopefully we don't, but it's easy to fall into. It's easy to fall into as parents, right? To say this one thing, and, and but acted out different in our own lives. It's interesting that you say that these are characters and masters of energy and what you said this is bad ass. Like I my company went through a big meltdown and uh, we had to get a new um, assistant manager and he knew his stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. Nobody respected the guy. Right, he yeah. He was a very good operator in the field. Yeah. But when it came time for him to lead people, yeah. he would just order you and not do anything. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, it, it had nothing to do with his level of power. Yep. It had everything to do with his level of commitment to Yeah. I find this with my own children. I mean, if I was like, hey, go clean the dining room, and I'm sitting on the couch, you know, they're like, eh, you know, do it halfway. But if you're up and you're cleaning with them right alongside them, they're, they're doing a great job because you can't lead like that. You can't lead by just saying, hey, this needs to get done, do it. Now, obviously, there are times for delegation and all that. I get that. But you need to be as, a, as a, an overseer needs to be characterized by somebody who's already gone there, right? I can't minister the gospel to you if I'm empty and I've got, no, I've got nothing to draw from. Um, and there will be times like that in the, in the life of an elder or pastor, but we have a responsibility to labor in the word and sacrament, so we should be ready in season and out of season to do so. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't love people, and that doesn't show in your character, you can't lead them and direct them. Um, it's so true, and uh, it has to be reminded. And I think we see this uh, sort of in bad ways in our modern age, where we have executive pastor, worship pastor, youth pastor, pastor of arts, and you know, pastor of getting the chairs together. I don't know. <laughs> You know, and all, all, all those divisions or labor are fine so long as you always remember you're a pastor. There, there's no other qualifications. It, it doesn't matter if your job is just to run the business of the church. If you have pastor as a label, then you 
ought to be governed by these qualifications. And that means your character and your love for other people, right? Um, you can't say, well, I just do preaching, so I don't interact with the messy sheep. That's not the way God has called uh, pastors to, to do, as ideal as that might be. <laughs> uh, he continues, hospitable. What? Okay, hospitable. What does that mean? I think we have a couple of different meanings. We have our modern meaning of hospitality and then what it might have meant in the ancient world. What do you think he means by it? Why is it important for an elder to be hospitable? Sort of. Welcoming for sure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hospitality in the in the the way the New Testament uses hospitality is between brothers and sisters in Christ and strangers, brothers and sisters, Christians, but those you don't know. Those are the ones that travel into your town and you you let them stay in your home and you feed them and you care for them because they're Christians. That's what hospitality meant in the first century. Now it sort of means us getting together after church or whatever. That's fine. That is hospitality. But that's not what the New Testament's talking about, hospitality. Uh, the New Testament is talking about welcoming in strangers. Not, not people who are not Christians, strangers, but Christians who are strangers. That's the way it's used um, in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. She was saying, like, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what Janet was saying too. It's a it's a it's a um it's a way of being, right? A presence that you have with other people that's disarming, that allows them to feel at home, to open up. You know, you're relatable. Uh you're not the curmudgeon, you know, ready with your theological axe, you know, and and are able to wield it to demolish them, you know, in their in their pagan arguments or whatever, you know, but you are, you, you're open. You're, you're somebody who, uh, can, people can get along with, they can relate to You're hospitable, right? Um, able to teach. I think that's probably pretty apparent. 
I mean, it's important for a, an elder, if he's going to oversee the spiritual work of the church, that he be able to teach. That he be able that. And what does that imply? If you if you're going to teach something, what do you have to do? You got to study it. You got to know it, right? You got to study so that you can teach, so that you're able to teach. But it's also a gift, you know, it's something where you know you, you've all had those teachers that you wondered if they had the gift of teaching, <laughs> you know. You thought, I don't know if you could teach anything to anybody, anywhere. <laughs> and yet they labor away at it. But um, there are others where you're like, I could learn anything from this person. They are so charismatic and they're passionate about what they're teaching. So I don't even care about this algebra, but I've, I've learned it because this person is such a great teacher. Right? And that's the gift of teaching. And I think that there are uh, levels within that. We do see that in the, in the New Testament. There are those who labor in the preaching and teaching, and then there are those who labor over oversight. Um, so we have that distinction in our PCA between teaching elders who are vocationally trained to teach and to preach and ruling elders which can teach and preach, but that's not their day-to-day uh, um, vocation. So we do make a distinction, although they are both elders, the same plurality, the same uh, power and authority. Uh, there's no distinction between them two besides those two kind of division of labor. Yeah, yeah. If you want to be a teacher, you got to be teachable for sure. Yeah, yep. And that's a whole attitude, yes. It's, it's more than just communicating knowledge. Yeah. Uh, one of the prayers that I regularly pray for somebody else's teaching is to ask that what we have to teach would be able to search the conscience, mm. convince the mind, win the heart, yep. and produce enduring fruit. Yep. Mm-hmm. Is what it is to be able to teach. Yep. If, if, if I just throw out a bunch of yep. facts mm-hmm. that don't challenge anybody's conscience or that they listen to it and they go, yeah, so yeah. what? Yep. If it hasn't been taught. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could put, we're, we are embodied souls, we are not brains on a stick. You know, this is the problem with the Enlightenment. With Descartes, he was going to find that one indubitable fact, and that was his own brain, you know? That, and that was so devastating for our culture, right? That has led us to where we are today because we have been able to disembody ourselves so that we're just thinking things. But we're not. We are whole-souled people. And that means when we teach and preach, it, it can't just be to the head. It's got to be to the heart, too. You use the analogy of the, the elephant and the rider. The elephant is your emotions, your will, and all that, whereas your, the rider is your intellect, and, your, um, and you need both. But often the, the elephant is a lot bigger than the rider. It has a lot more passions and desires that drive it, and they're not always, they're precognitive, right? They don't always 
They're not always thought through. Your emotions and your desires, your appetites, those things are not always, you're not always thinking, hey, this is what I'm going to do. It's just automatic. But you need your writer to be influencing the elephant. And so in our teaching and preaching, we got to be, we have to, we can't just be emotionally driven. So where we feel like we're manipulating the elephant, we have to speak to the intellect, but it has to be to the heart as well. Uh, if, the, if they're not in tandem, then you're never going to get anywhere. So yeah, you're exactly right. Yep. Sure. Right. But it's that those in which who are called to be in that church, to be in that area, will be strengthened. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm not really asking the question. But so where does teaching and evangelism, I guess, line up? Mm, mm, yeah. Evangelism, evangelism is the work of all Christians. And being able to teach the Word of God in a public setting is narrowly focused to a few There's going to be teaching and evangelism too. But what he means by able to teach is able to open up the word of God and explain it and apply it to God's people. The church, yeah, 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 the church. Yeah, these, these directions are to Timothy in setting up elders within the church. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, these are the ascension gifts of Christ. When he ascended, he gave gifts to men. And part of these gifts are Shepherd teachers, right? It's one word, or it's one phrase. There's no commas or anything. We sometimes delineate it as pastors and teachers, but it's actually pastor teachers. That's a job. And uh, so, and it's one of the gifts that God has given to his church. So, yes, and, um, you know, if we look, we're going really slow, but um, let's kind of skip down to uh, verse 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And one important feature of 1 Timothy is that the the language of household. Um, 
if you look down at verse 15, he says, if I delay, that is, I delay in coming to you, he's writing these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So he thinks of the church in terms of a household with a father and who has authority over them and, um, and servants and people who help and brothers and sisters who all get along, who love one another because they're of the same family. So he, he defines and thinks in terms of the household. And so he uses that as the qualifications for elders, right? If you, if you have an unruly household, you can't get your children to come to church. They're not behaving well. Now, this doesn't mean that they are uh, necessarily Christians, but that they are outwardly obedient, right? That they're not in rebellion, that they are submissive to you. Uh, you can't, any more than anyone else, ensure that your children are Christian, but you can raise them according to that they are Christians and have them in compliance to your authority. And that's not done by being a dictator, right? Every, anyone who's ever tried to get somebody to follow them, it doesn't work, right? I mean, you can by violence and, th- and abuse and using your power. You can manage people in a direction. But you can tell. You can usually tell those people they're not whole, right? They've, something's been broken in them if they've been abused and forced to go in a direction. Um, so you can usually discern that too. Uh, so the way that we are to be as fathers and husbands in the home is is shepherds, loving, laying down our life, leading our family towards faithfulness. So Paul is not advocating that you just be autocrats in your home, you know, barking out orders and commanding and, you know, making sure that everybody listens because that's not what he's calling elders to do in the church. Glenn. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Do not act for it. Yep. Yeah. What do you do? You disciple them. Yeah. You teach them to follow Christ. Yep. That involves instruction yep. and discipline. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And that's because they didn't use this as a grid. They didn't look into his household, right? We have been doing a lot of reform in the way of the BCO about how we examine elders for um, candidates for ministry. And I think one of those things should be taking the wife alone without her husband being there and asking her questions, how is your husband? Is he a good leader? Does he open the word of God to your family? How does he treat you? How does he treat the children? And then talking with the children as well. That's how you know the measure of a man is by the children will not lie to you, right? They will be completely honest. Oh, my dad never opens the Bible. 
right? We never prayed to. I've never prayed with them, you know. Well, yeah, that doesn't mean that abuse doesn't negate proper use. You should always. There will be abuse, and if in those situations you sh- you if you're trained well, you should be able to discern those kinds of things. That doesn't mean you don't do it. You should you right. It's not a foolproof measure. It, nothing is in this life, right? People can lie, and they can convince their whole family to lie, and that happens, right? There's, there's not much we can do because we can't see to the heart. But those, that fruit will be evident eventually. Janet. Yeah. And that caused a lot of anger. A lot of pastors, kids, like yep. their whole job was to be doing everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Successful pastor, and it's a whole bunch of different things. And yeah. This is great that it's lifting them all. Like yeah. All these callings, even yep. in the biggest calling. Yeah. Because I've heard stories of, you know, many pastors who really just left their family yep. in a lot of ways. Right. Just basically. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Like that's a night that's totally off the calendar yep. every Monday night. Yeah. And like he said, and my wife should not be expected to be teaching Sunday school or things like that. I yeah. Mean, back then, back <laughs> then, if you, yeah. you know, and this was a big church. Yeah. They, they pretty much, when he came, they had been on the mission field and had, had to leave Afghanistan and yep. then became a pastor. And it was a lot, it was a long time ago. But yeah. they kind of, but I think that was a godly framework. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. 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 They try to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy. I. I'll confess. I don't. I'm not very good at that. It is hard. Um, Uh, other translations say provoke, so it's sort of like lead them to anger, right? Do things that cause them to sin. Uh, so, you know, be belligerent in your behavior, be angry at them, you know, harsh, demanding, you know, those, those kind, anything that's going to lead them or provoke them to sin or to anger is, would be exasperate, you know. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you need to be aware as a parent of where your child is developmentally. Not all you know, children can handle the same things that other children, even their same age, is can. Right? We know we have to work within the limitations of our kids, giving them instructions 
that we know that they can handle, you know, not something that's going to just, you know, provoke them to despair or anger or something like that. So, yeah, that's wise, wise leadership. And as Glenn said, it's fronted by, he says, manage his own household well and then with all dignity. This is the manner that he is leading his children to be submissive, is to be with dignity, right? And I, I will confess, there's been some times where my leadership as a father has not been with dignity, right? And I've had to confess that to my children. I have sinned against you. I was angry, and I, and I disciplined you out of that anger. You know, Paul is not, he's not marking out some ideal person who doesn't exist, we all have sin. We all have to confess that sin. But those times where you as a father humble yourself and confess your sin are great times of growth. Your children learn how to live the Christian life by seeing how you fail and how you respond to your failures. If you never confess that you're wrong in front of them, you have failed them. And you're leading them in the wrong direction. Because they won't confess their sin. They will never learn how to. It has to be public, and it has to be um, quick, swift. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah, right, right. He's he's failing in the right direction, right? You're you're going you're you're falling, but you're going in the right way, and uh, that's I mean that's the Christian life. We're constantly falling and falling short of God's mark is is uh, is something that we will always wrestle with this side of glory. So he continues. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So, I mean, that's kind of self-explanatory. What do you think? Why, why is that important that he not be just new to the faith? There are multiple reasons. He doesn't have any experience. He doesn't have any experience. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, now it, just relate that to what we've been talking about, Repentance. Now think about somebody who is just starting off in the journey. How humble you were you by your sin? You were? 
I wasn't real humble by my sin. I mean, I w- I, it took me like repeated failures before I started to re- realize that I needed to be humble in my repentance, right? Because before, when I first became a Christian, repentance was easy. It was like just, yeah, of course, why would I even do that? I mean, it was just like a clean break with sin. But then as I went on, it got harder, right? It, it becomes more challenging. And as you grow in your maturity, you learn that it's, you learn to deal with others in their condition gently, right? Because of your own infirmities. But a novice in the faith, it's just guns blazing, right? It's like, you know what? I don't think you're a Christian because you did that. You know, you're out. Excommunication. I mean, that, that's, the, you know, what's going to come. And that's what he's talking about. This uh, puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Well, what was his condemnation? Yeah, he wanted to be God. So we don't ordain novices because we don't want them to fall into that kind of sin, right? We appreciate their zeal, but zeal without the experience of having mortified your own sin, how challenging that is, how difficult it is to walk the Christian life, to take up your cross daily. Without those humbling experiences, you can't, you can't shepherd other people. You can't deal with them like how they should be dealt with because you're, you, you don't have the experience of doing it. Yeah. More than that. Yeah. Yeah. After that, he spent like seven years in in Arabia. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. 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 But I can't say that the way they ended up handling it was necessarily the best choice on their part. I mean, did God use it for good? Absolutely. You know, right. but that doesn't mean that I I made all the right choices and reactions. Yeah. Yeah. Even the moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh I mean one of the biggest interpretive questions of the book of acts is is it prescriptive or is it descriptive what are we what are we supposed to take away from that you know is this how you live how you do it or is this this is what happened and sometimes you need to be careful (laughs) because you could end up doing things like this um and i think it's the it's the latter you know Uh, we're obviously given a lot of of uh positive things in the the acts of the apostles to emulate but there are other things where we need to be cautious it's a description so then he continues moreover he must be well outsiders so that he may not fall in disgrace into a snare of the devil so we talked a little bit about this but um i think this gets we have a lot of pastors who are working really hard 
to be thought well of by outsiders? And what are they doing to do that? Compromising. They're compromising the message, right? Uh, It's really not popular to say you are a sinner and unless you repent, you're going to hell. That's not a real popular message. It's never been a popular message, but it's even less popular nowadays, right? So um, there's a lot of pastors who latch onto this verse and they say, oh, I need to be well thought of by outsiders. And I got this ad nauseum in my seminary training. It, it was like, no, never cause offense. Never put a stumbling block in front of somebody. Always do your level best to remove every offense of the gospel and your own getting in the way of the message. Now, to some extent, that is true, right? We don't want to just be belligerent and, you know, you, you need to know who you're talking to and, and best adapt the message to them. But being thought well of by outsiders, what do you think Paul's really getting at there? Yeah. Others and, and transactions, yeah. 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 So is he in business? How does he conduct himself in business? You know, how how is he when he relates to other people? You know, uh, you don't have to be within the church for people to for you to get a reputation. You know, oh, that guy's a swindler. Watch out! Hold your wallet because he's gonna, he's gonna negotiate you down, and you're gonna be left with nothing or whatever. You know, you can get a reputation outside of the church um, that doesn't have to do with the message you're speaking, but your character, the way that you operate, the way you live. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I go to the gym every morning and I'm and I'm consciously aware that and I, I sometimes wear a shirt that says pastor on the back. And I'm aware that I would do great damage to my witness if I'm like every other guy oogling the women in the in the uh, gym. Right. So I make a concerted effort to never do that. And that means I'm looking at the ground a lot. Right. Or I'm I've got my hat way down low and I'm you know, I'm in my zone, but I want I don't want to damage my reputation so that if I did have a conversation, the guys think I'm just like them and I would treat the women just like they would. Right. So we have to be aware of, you know, just like she said, how how are you responding in the store when you're conducting business, when you're shopping? You know, what kind of person are you? Are you rude and slovenly and, you know, mistreat other people because you've got to you're going to get through this Walmart and it's crazy and chaotic and, you know, God forbid somebody get in your way, you know, that kind of attitude. 
Yeah, there is. Because people have their preconceptions yep. of what pastors or elders ought to be or are, yep. what the church is about, what Christianity is about, yeah. for that matter. And there's a positive. People should be surprised when they get to know you because you don't fit their category. Yeah, exactly. You know, you, you're not like they thought you would be. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that was the uh, the apologetic that Peter said. When they see you, they will ask you of the hope that you have. Well, they have to see that you have some hope. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, it's helpful to always have the twin pillars together, right? We have, we cannot just preach the law. We have to come in with the gospel, with the hope of it. And sometimes we're not as good at that. And I was thinking of that when we were talking about our children. Sometimes we're quick to discipline with the law, but we're not as quick to bring in the gospel. So we don't want to we don't want to just be law, but we also don't want to just be gospel. You have to understand you're a sinner in need of a savior. If you don't understand that, you'll never get the gospel. But it has to be together. They have to be wed together. Law and gospel always. One more, one more. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And part of that goes into your reputation. Are you respectable? What's your demeanor? How, what's your tone when you're giving it? All those things matter. Yeah. All right, we're out of time, so let's wrap it up. Glenn, would you close us in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word today, and, and we thank you for the people that each of us have in our lives that have, have been these kind of leaders to us. Mm. Uh, they've shepherded our souls, and, and we pray that you would give us each in our own position, whether it's a position of leadership in the church or, or this place in, in life that's almost invisible, that you would, you would lead us, each one, to become more like Christ mm. and to be an example, a help, a true help, a challenge to each other. In Christ's name, amen. amen.